The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 64, 1-4, and Ephesians 6, 10-18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. From the book of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we invite you here. Uh, We thank you that you've met us in our worship. We thank you for how you're leading us and guiding us giving us hearts that want to desire you and hearts that want to turn from our sin. God, uh, I am not capable of communicating the reality um, of what I'm about to try to communicate. And so I ask that the Holy Spirit would think through our mind and speak through my vocal cords. And just as importantly, that you would, the Holy Spirit would settle upon the people in this room and you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what I'm going to share this morning. Um, Would you do this for your good? for your glory, for our good, for our joy. Help us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are doing this series on revival, and revival is different than revivalism. Revivalism is just a series of meetings where we get all hyped up. But revival, true revival, is a season where God's presence comes down in an unusual way to stir the hearts of men and women. That God comes down and people wake up to who he is, what he has done to save them, and they begin to change the way they live their lives. It's that simple. That God, if he mattered to them at all, was always on the outskirts of their life. He was on the periphery of their priorities. But in revival, they begin to see that God is actually the center of all things. And if you want to have a real life, you need to put God at the center of your life. And he takes precedent over everything else. But there's one underlying reason why God's people are not experiencing perpetual revival. And that is, quite simply, because God has an arch enemy who is hell-bent on keeping people unaware of his presence. And in revivals, people begin to wake up to this enemy as well. They begin to realize that life is not meant to be a perpetual state of peace, that life is actually meant to be a war. That every day we roll out of our bed and we put our clothes on and put our shoes on and we walk out into a spiritual battlefield. But we're going to learn today, God has given us armor and authority over all the power of the enemy. But for us this morning, we want to take a look at just who is this arch enemy? Who, what is he? Now, you are probably getting a little nervous. You possibly could be, right? In our text today, maybe you already did when the text was read. In our text today, the Apostle Paul says that this world is inhabited and Christians are attacked by unseen evil forces. He names them 
the devil, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, when you hear that, you're probably thinking, are you serious? Like, we're 21st century Americans. You don't actually believe in the devil, do you? Now, the simple answer is yes. Jesus believed in the devil and he was the son of God, so we do. But that isn't the only reason we believe in the devil and unseen spiritual evil. I want us to think about it logically this morning. First, if you believe that there really is evil in the world, and there are behaviors, behaviors that are objectively evil. That means they're evil no matter what anybody says, that if they're right or wrong, they're just flat out always evil. Sexual abuse, child abuse, rape, murder, genocide. These are just a, a few. To be intellectually consistent and intellectually honest means that you then have to believe in the existence of an ultimate standard of moral right and wrong or moral goodness, that there are some things that are good. And if you break those things, those are bad. Those are evil. Well, that standard of ultimate goodness, that's God. Second, if you therefore believe in an unseen spiritual God, if you say, yeah, there has to be a God because there are, there is evil in the world. So there's got to be an ultimate standard of good. That's God. If you believe there is a God, how is it any different than to believe in an unseen spiritual evil? Also, if you believe in Jesus and you like the stuff that he has to say about loving your neighbor and going to heaven, you also have to take the stuff he says about the devil and hell. And Jesus talked about both of these quite a bit. Third, the existence of the devil makes sense of the nature of evil and its pervasive influence in our society and even in us. I want to ask you this morning, why is it so hard to be good? Why is it so hard to be honest and trustworthy and generous? Why is it so hard? Listen, what is this? We're in March, right? How many of you are still going strong on those New Year's resolutions? Right? You killed that gym membership for three days in January. <laughs> right? Why is it so hard to have self-control? Harvard psychologist and professor, who's right now, many are saying, the leading public intellectual in the world today, and he's main, his main influence is through YouTube, Dr. Jordan Peterson, has gone as far to say that the entire nature and being of the universe is bent towards evil. Listen, when we're talking about what is the nature of being, what is being like, this is what Dr. Jordan Peterson says. He says, and I have a quote on the screen, being is suffering tainted by malevolence in the world. What he's saying is the most universal experience in all of human existence is actually suffering. We can all relate to suffering. We've all suffered or we're going to suffer in some way. And so from that, he says, that means being itself is suffering tainted by malevolence. That means there's some people out there that have evil intentions to make our suffering worse. But I meet many people who just do not believe in the existence of a literal devil. They tell me, you just can't blame all your problems or the problems of society on the devil, right? Right? You can't just blame everything on the devil. Now, listen, I get it. We're far too smart these days to blame it on the devil. That's hillbilly religion, right? If you're educated, you got to blame all your problems on your parents, <laughs> right? Everything bad, everything that you struggle with, it's all because of the way you were raised, right? When a culture dismisses the idea of actual evil personified in Satan, all forms of wrong get blamed on the environment. I was poor. I had a bad upbringing. I was uneducated. We didn't go to church. But here's what's interesting. This worldview 
though we've held it for many decades now in America, this worldview is being challenged today in the face of actual evil. We've told our children for several decades now that the universe is good and wants to bless them. That we are all on a conveyor belt to utopia. Just hang on to your smartphones and everything's going to get better. We've convinced a generation of kids that they are somehow super special and could do whatever it is that they set their minds to. You're 100 pounds, but if you want to be an NFL lineman, just believe it hard enough, buddy. We have raised our children to believe that the universe is good and good things happen to good people. Now, I want you to imagine with me a scenario this morning. If you convince your child to go out and build a fort, and you tell them, hey, bud, go out, all the material's out there, I'll even pay you $100 to go out and build this fort. Go on out. Now, that's the story we tell most of our kids right there. Grow up, be whatever you want, find some interesting career, go out and do it. Nothing's stopping you, buddy. When in reality, what if in reality, in this story, we're actually sending them out into a war zone? Would that change the way you prepare your kids? Think of it yourself, of what you would do if you knew, actually, I'm stepping into a war zone that bullets are going to be flying. There's an enemy out there attacking me. It's no longer just build your good life and build your good career. I've got to have some defensive tactics. There's somebody out there hell-bent on destroying me. I think we've raised our kids with the idea that nothing is against you in the world. Go out and it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns. When in reality, we're sending them into an evil world, hell-bent on destroying them. See, we have, our children, I think, have been utterly and entirely unprepared for the reality of living in an evil world. A world where planes flown by men purposefully fly into buildings full of innocent people. A world where grown-up, educated, wealthy men set up a sniper's nest in the top of hotel buildings to kill as many human beings as possible at a concert. A world where teenagers fantasize and then actually act upon their evil fantasies and bring AR-15s to schools to terrorize their teachers and classmates. Now there's this great quote in the encouraging and uplifting movie and book, Silence of the Lambs. Officer Starling is interviewing Hannibal Lecter, serial killer who eats his victims. And she says, what happened to you? See, she's confronted with evil and doesn't know what to do with it. Something had to make him this way. Bad parents, unjust social system, poor schools. And Anthony Hopkins, in the way that only Anthony Hopkins can say something, says, and I can't do it, so don't expect it. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You have given up good and evil for behaviorism. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can't you stand to say I'm evil? Listen, We do not deny the reality that all of us have been influenced by our parents and the culture that we have grown up in. But we also know by personal experience that bad parents can somehow produce good kids. And great parents can somehow produce bad kids. Therefore, our upbringing cannot be the cause of evil. We also know that environment plays a large factor in our habits and our thoughts and our feelings, but we have seen people rise above their environment. Just because you were abused does not mean that you are going to become an abuser. Just because you were raised in an alcoholic home does not mean that you are going to become an alcoholic. Therefore, our environment is not the cause of evil. It can have contributing factors, but it is not the cause. So we are not denying the reality that there are environmental factors to the bad things that we do. We're saying that they're not the source. Now listen, C.S. Lewis in his 
fantastic book, The Screw Tape Levels, Screw Tape Letters, um, says this. There are two equal and opposing errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Just don't believe them at all. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons themselves, are pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So this morning, I'm going to attempt to not fall in either ditch on the sides of the road. We can, we can try to write off, oh, the devil doesn't real, that the devil and evil, that, that, that doesn't really exist. And we can also get so obsessed with them that every cough you have is somehow inspired by a demon, right? We can get, we can get too interested in them. So this morning, I want to do a really quick overview of who is the devil? Who, what are demons? That's what we're going to get into. Now, first thing we learn as we read the scriptures is Satan or the devil was created by God, but he was created good. Okay. Now that tells us a couple things. One, listen, Satan is not God's equal. God is the only uncreated creator. God is the only one with ultimate power and is sovereign over all things. God is the only one who is omniscient and knows all things and can be and, and omnipresent and can be all places at all times. Satan is not like that. Satan is a created being. Satan was, people, most people believe, the most beautiful angel. He was the choir boy, some want to say, right? He was created by God with the ability to choose evil or good, to choose good or what is evil, the absence of good, turning away from good. And what we learn is that Satan, through his beauty, was proud. And pride is the beginning of all evil. Pride in the hearts of men, pride in the hearts of angelic beings. And Satan, in his pride, wanted more. It's interesting. Jonathan Edwards thought that Satan heard God's plan of salvation for man. That the Trinity told the angels, here's the plan. I'm going to create man. It's going to go bad. And then Jesus, the, the son, is going to become a man and redeem this broken thing that we've created. And that Satan heard this and flipped out in jealousy. God become man? Why not an angel? Why, not, why can't I be God? And he just flipped out in jealousy. And Satan then incited a great rebellion in heaven. He took one third of all the angelic beings and rebelled against God. And he turned from God and, he, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, that Satan and, and one third of the demons were thrown out of heaven. And then Satan kind of slips into heaven as a snake. We see in the Garden of Eden, he takes on some kind of form as a snake and he tempts Adam and Eve to follow him in rebellion against their creator. And Adam and Eve followed Satan and in doing so, Satan, look, instituted his dominion, his grip, his power, his authority over the world, exercising a pervasive, controlling influence over the world. So now the scriptures call Satan the ruler of this world, the God of this age, little g, the prince of the power of the air. And, he sa and it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then a chapter later in Genesis, you get the first murder. That's why Satan is referred to to in the scriptures as a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies, the tempter, that anytime we see violence and bloodshed and murder and war and oppression and genocide or any other expression of hate, as well as any and every sin, deception and evil, Satan and his demonic hosts are promoting it, enticing people to do it and empowering it. He is, Ephesians 2 says, the spirit that is now working in the sons and daughters of disobedience. 
that you can trace all evil, all error, all violence back to Satan. And his ultimate desire is to deceive people, to steal, kill, and destroy people and pull them away from God into sin, misery, death, and eternal destruction. But Satan is still a created being. He is not all powerful. He cannot make you do anything. There is no the devil made me do it, excuse for sin, right? We're trying to teach our kids the reality of evil. As soon as they realize that, why did you do this, son? The devil made me do it, right? Like, just became a puppet and slapped my sister, right? No, that's not how how it works. The devil tempts, he lies, he deceives. One Puritan author says, he baits the hook, Right? He baits the hook. Think about that. You don't see the hook. All you see is the bait. So you chomp down on it and then you're snagged. But we choose to follow. We are the ones responsible for our own behavior. We are culpable for our own sins. But here's where the good news comes in. In Genesis, right away in Genesis, after Adam and Eve decided to follow Satan, God promised to destroy Satan once and for all. He promised the coming of his son, Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent. And what we learn from the Bible is that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and comes to the earth, listen, as a baby snake killer, many, many years later. This is how the apostle John describes Jesus' coming in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to kill the snake from the garden. That Jesus came to eradicate our planet of evil. Jesus was sent on a secret mission from God. And he entered the human race as silently as a Navy SEAL. No one but some shepherds and wise men knew who he was. But Jesus wasn't just a cute, fat little baby. He was born an assassin king. A king who would destroy the devil, overthrow his kingdom, and inaugurate the kingdom of God who would mark the beginning of the end to Satan's reign on this earth. And when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you see Jesus in constant battle with the forces of Satan and with Satan himself. You see him tempted by Satan in the desert, yet Jesus resisted him and does not sin. Jesus is confronted with demon-possessed people and he casts out the demons. Jesus is touched by sick people and they are made well like this. The sexually broken come to Jesus and he heals them and he removes their shame and their sense of dirtiness from them. Everywhere you look, Jesus is pushing back darkness and overcoming evil of this world. Jesus was at war with Satan. He wasn't just some good moralistic teacher. He was a warrior king, a demon killer. And Satan opposed Jesus at every stage of his earthly life and ministry. And Jesus overcame him every time. But then Satan's greatest malevolence was to entice Judas to betray Jesus and use the religious and political powers of the day to crucify him. But God, here we see God is never outwitted by evil. And so God, in the greatest plot twist of all time, God uses history's greatest sin to deal Satan his death blow in the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's this great scene in the movie, The Matrix, where Neo is figuring out who he is, that he's the one, 
and that one of the agents has, has been fighting with him and he can't keep, keep up with him. And then all of a sudden, Neo realizes who he is and literally, it's weird, I know, if you've never seen the movie, but you should watch, it's fun, you should watch it. Neo dives inside of this guy, like goes inside of him and, and implodes him, explodes him from the inside out. And if you understand the scriptures, that's exactly what Jesus did with death. He says, we're going to defeat death. We're going to eradicate evil. Put me in it. And so he allows men to crucify him. He allows men to kill him. And he dies. And from inside death, Jesus defeats death and is resurrected to new life. And that's why every single person who puts their faith in Christ and follows Jesus will not see death. Well, our physical body will die. Our spiritual body, our spiritual life, our soul will live on. And then when Christ comes back again, we get a new body. That death is not the last word for us. Jesus defeated death from the inside out. And in Colossians 2.15, it says this, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's speaking of Satan and his and his and his demons. And Jesus has put them to open shame by triumphing over them. There was this horrible song. It's a horrible song if you're a musician, right? But if you're kind of a cheesy kid, it's an, out, it's an amazing song. And it was by a guy named Carmen, and it was called The Champion. Does anybody remember this? Remember this? I remember as a kid, this was my Rocky song, right? This is my Rocky, right? This is narrative that's played out and, G and, and Satan is after, after Jesus and, and, and he's like kills him and he's like, yeah, we killed him. And then all of a sudden dead Jesus, well, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Jesus starts twitching and the devil starts, what? What's going on? And Jesus gets up and it's just this big epic moment, right? That Jesus defeated death. He disarmed Satan and his powers and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through his resurrection. Colossians 1, 13, 14 says, through this, through the gospel, through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has delivered us, delivered, brought us out, set us free from the domain of darkness, this present darkness, this world. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're born under the kingdom of Satan and his rule, but Jesus through his death and resurrection, when we put our faith in him, we are transferred out of that domain into a new domain, the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then Matthew 25 and the book of Revelation and particular chapter 20 tell us that Jesus, now listen, though he has conquered Satan in his death and resurrection, Jesus will eventually and finally destroy the devil by throwing him and all of his demonic host into hell the lake of fire for eternity. Why did God create a hell? For Satan and his demons. Mankind in their rebellion, in a sense, could say, we could say they're the, they're the second thought. Man's not meant to go to hell. Satan and his demons were meant to go to hell. Satan and his demons tempt man to follow him there. In the book, in the end of our story, God destroys Satan and the demons in the fires of hell. And when Jesus does that, listen, the earth will once again be free from the tyranny of the devil and the kingdom of God and of Christ will reign on the earth in peace forever. Please, that's just a side note. Please understand that we're not going, just going up to heaven to exist and float on a cloud. Heaven's coming to earth and we're going to live forever in a totally renewed and restored earth with God at its center. That's where we're headed. Oh, that's exciting, but whatever. <laughs> so Jesus won a great victory for his people upon the cross. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. But the confusing thing for us is simply this. We live in this awkward time, don't we? It's the time between the times. It's the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. 
that in this time between the times, Satan is defeated, his kingdom has been toppled and overthrown, but it has not been obliterated. It has not been totally destroyed. That's coming when Christ comes back the second time. And for many of us, we get confused at this point. Thinking, when we look at our life and when we look at our world, we think that perhaps the gospel has failed or that God has failed or God is not interested in me and my problems and my sin, that God's absent from the practical and daily affairs of my life. This causes many of us to become so discouraged. Thinking, I thought the Christian life was was about victory. I thought as soon as I meet Jesus, it would get easier. Some of you were told that, and I apologize. You were told, accept Christ and everything gets better. It's not true. It's like the army recruiter, right? Sitting down with an 18-year-old and going, come on, buddy, everything's going to get better once you join the army. A year later, bullets are flying by this guy's head. Nobody told me about this. I thought it was like Call of Duty. I got multiple tries. Restart. Let me try that again. Right? No, I could die in this thing. Life is war. When you become a Christian, you are entering into a war zone. You are entering into a battlefield and you have a real enemy. See, there's a war... There's God and there's Satan. I'll just say it. There's the winner and the ultimate loser here. And there's humanity in the middle. Now, it's been a long time since war has really came to our continent where innocent bystanders get taken out just from being in between two opposing sides. But that's that's the spiritual reality we all live in every day. Satan is opposed to God and is at war with him, and all of humanity is caught somewhere in the middle. So, I'm not going to go all the way through our text this morning. If you haven't found that out already, y'all like, he ain't even got to the Bible yet. (laughs) Open up to Ephesians 6 real quick. This is what we're going to see. Verse 10, finally, he had a lot to say in Ephesians. Hey, listen, guys, I've preached two sermons on this text in the past. You can go up and look in our Ephesians series and get a lot better treatment of it. I'm just going to touch on it this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Look, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul is telling us here, Christian, Life is war. Joel said it this morning. Worship is warfare. Revival is warfare. Can I just say again, I'm on this kick this morning. We need to start telling our kids this. The world is still evil. Satan is still on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking for whom he may may devour. Our job as Christian parents is to prepare our kids for the real world. Our job is less about raising nice little boys and girls and more about training dragon slayers. That there is evil out there, be prepared for it. We should be teaching our kids this. Again, I'm going to quote the Dr. Jordan Peterson. I'm going to quote his, his quote in, in the fullest extent here. He says this, being is suffering tainted by malevolence in the world. So what's the meaning of life? There's pain to alleviate. There's chaos to confront. There's order to establish, and look at this word, revivify. There's evil to constrain, not least in our own hearts. 
Dr. Dr. This psychologist, Dr. Jordan Peterson, he, he speaks about these school shootings and he's read their diaries and he's gotten inside their mind. And this is what he says. This is what's motivating them. They come to the realization the universe is evil. Now listen, the universe is evil. I've been bullied. I've been picked on. People are mean. There's no point in anything. The universe is evil. Now listen, here's what Christianity says. Here, the universe is evil. Christ has overcame it. You can make it a better place by living out the gospel here on this earth and pushing back evil and resisting Satan because Jesus has eventually and finally will overcome it all and make it all good again. That's what the gospel says. But listen to the story that they have. Their story is this. Being is evil. The universe is evil. I want to lash out at it. I want to destroy being itself. The universe is violent. I'll give you violence. People are mean. We should wipe them off the face of the earth. This is the dark worldview that's motivating this behavior. It's not because they had bad parents. Listen, there have always been jerks in the world. Was any, anybody in this room bullied as a kid? Right? I know I was. There's always been mean girls. <laughs> right? It's just been, it's, listen. Evil is out there, but now with the worldview we're living in, that there is no actual evil, there is no actual Satan, we don't know how to do it, deal with it. We don't have the worldview necessary to combat evil. And Dr. Jordan Peterson, even though he's coming from a secular worldview, he's saying, no, 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 yes, suffering is evil. What's the meaning of life? Push back evil. Constrain it. Do something good in the world. Alleviate some pain and suffering from somebody else. Now, back to our text. Paul says to the Christian, you are in a battle and you need strength and armor. Now, I know if you've been in the church for a long time, you've probably heard a lot of sermons on this text. Uh, I think when I was a little kid, I actually had a little plastic outfit that went along with this. If you guys remember this, right? Helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, plastic armor doesn't protect much. Listen, what's, what's he getting at? You're in a battle and you need strength. It says in the strength of the Lord's might. You can't do this on your own. You're in a battle. You need armor. The spiritual battle. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Or are you just tip-throwing, tiptoeing through life, completely oblivious to the reality that you're in a battle? And every time a negative thought comes to your mind, you're like, what? what's happening to me? Every time you get sick, what's happening? Every time we see something on the news, oh, right? We're not on a trajectory or, you know, a, what are those things that you get on in the, in the airport? You just stand on it and just, just conveyor belt, right? Something like that. I don't know what it is. A moving walkway, right? <laughs> we are not on a moving walkway to utopia, we are not, our society is not just getting better. We are not evolving into better humans. If evolution is truly real, it's done nothing with the problem of evil. We've not evolved out of evil. Paul says here, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That means the Christian strength comes from Jesus. Be wary anytime you think you got something licked. Oh, I used to be like that. What did you do? I just got up and started praying. I just said, I'm never going to do it again. All of a sudden, this pride starts building up in your heart. And Satan's like, oh yeah, I'm going to let him be victorious for another month. His pride's going to get so out of control, then I'm going to wham! The strength of a Christian comes from resting in our weakness and relying on Jesus does not come from willpower or discipline alone. We also see that we're given armor. And now armor is for protection from enemies' attacks. Armor is a defensive tool. Every piece of armor, if you notice in here, listen, every piece of armor is a piece of gospel doctrine. 
It's a belief about God. It's righteousness. It's truth. And that's meant to, t- that, that's meant to you know, keep us from the fiery darts of the evil one. What's it talking about that there? Most of Satan's attacks on the Christian come through the mind. Trying to convince us of a lie. Trying to give us bad doctrine, bad beliefs. Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against, listen to what he says here, the schemes of the devil. The devil is a schemer. His name means deceiver, liar, slanderer. And the whole point of a schemer is to get close to you. To get past your defenses. To get as close to you as possible. And this is one of the most interesting things we see in this text Look what verse 12 says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We do not wrestle. Paul chooses a very strange word here. The word is pale in the Greek. And it literally means to wrestle. He doesn't use the word for warfare, or battle, or sword fight. He chooses to use the word describing the wrestlers in the Colosseum. Seems weird. We are prepared for a sword or bow and arrow fight, but then he says, we wrestle against Satan and evil. When you're wrestling, you don't want, the armor doesn't help. Wrestling is intimate. What he's saying, what Paul is saying here is that Satan is such a schemer and he's so cunning that we usually don't even recognize him until his hands are already on us. He doesn't show up with a pitchfork. He doesn't show up wearing all black and black lipstick. Oh, I get it. There he is, the dude with the black lipstick on. Stay away from him. He looks like an angel of light. The Bible says a wolf in sheep's clothing. He comes like a sheep. We don't notice him. We don't notice his tactics until he's right up on us, usually with his lying thoughts in our minds. That we, are, we find ourselves armed for battle, but end up in hand-to-hand combat. What do those thoughts sound like? You're on your own. You better prove that you're somebody. God doesn't care about you. You better get to work and make something of yourself. You're used goods. No one could love you with a past like yours. You are never going to change. You're too messed up. You are a spiritual faker. Just wait till somebody finds out about the real you. They're going to all turn their backs on you as soon as they see the truth of who who you are. Some of us, those lying thoughts are this. You are awesome. Look at all the broken people around you. What is wrong with them? If everyone could just be like you, the world would be much better place. Satan's in the back. Tell him how good he is. People who think they're good, they don't need Jesus. That's what we want. We don't want anybody to see their weakness and reach out for the loving arms of Jesus. Make him real confident in his ability. Make her real confident in how great of a mom she is. 
And Jesus is back there going, oh, I'm going to give him a devil of a child, and it's going to change that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, mom is like, Jesus, what happened? He's like, you ain't super mom. That's what happened. These are lying deceitful thoughts. These are intimate thoughts. These are the wrestling. We, Satan grabs us and gets this close to us. And honestly, our armor isn't much good. And he whispers these lying thoughts into our mind. And they're from Satan meant to tempt you to despair instead of trusting in the good news of the gospel. Listen, no matter where you're at in your life right now, and things can be incredibly dark and incredibly difficult right now. No matter where you are, God has already, past tense, proven his love for you. Satan is a lying murderer sitting on death row. His time is short and his hatred for God and man is truly evil. We resist him. Notice it says in this text too, We don't have any offensive weapons. The only thing we have is a sword of the spirit. And even that sword is meant as a defensive weapon most of the time. You don't go looking for a fight with the devil. You don't go chasing demons down and trying to figure things out like it. You don't do that. All of our warfare is standing. Standing on the truths of the gospel. Standing believing in the goodness of the Lord. Standing and believing in the death and resurrection of the Son. We resist him by standing our ground, trusting the spirit in the strength of Jesus by remembering the truths of the gospel. This is how I close this morning. What do you need to remember? I don't have to prove myself to anyone. This, you need to, I'm going to do this for you right now, but when the thoughts come into your mind, you have to learn how to do this yourself. And if you can't do it yourself yet, you have to reach out to a Christian brother and sister who can speak these things to you. Satan tempts, he whispers, and we have to respond by saying this, I don't have to prove myself to anyone. Jesus proved himself for me on the cross. My identity is secure in Christ and no devil in hell can take it away from him. He's already conquered the enemy. Jesus showed his love for me by knowing every single one of my sins. Jesus isn't shocked at the evil that's still in my heart because Jesus took it to the cross for me. He loved me in spite of my past. The devil says I'm never going to change And yet I remember I have changed. Can we just say that for a moment? I have changed. changed. Look in my past. Good Lord. I don't want to look back there too long. Now I am not the man I'm going to be, but I'm not the man I used to be either. Why is that? It ain't my goodness. It's the goodness of the Lord. The gospel is powerful. And the spirit is at work in me, changing me. Now listen, changing me, let's be real. Slowly. (laughs) Gradually. Like the way a tree grows in winter. I don't know, right? I don't feel it. I don't know it. And then all of a sudden you look out your door and you're like, for me, the power company's out there trimming your trees because they're getting in line with the power line. That thing grew. Didn't even see it growing. Right? Same way with us. We grow by trusting the gospel. We grow by believing the gospel. We grow slowly like a tree in winter. Our roots go down deep first. And then our branches go out and we start bearing fruit. It's all by leaning into Christ. Now in revival, and this is what we're praying and asking God to do in our church and do in our city. In revival, we wake up to this reality that life is war. And if life is war, how do I parent my children in wartime? That's different than in peacetime. How do I lead my business in wartime? That's different than in peacetime, right? How do I pursue my career in wartime? That's different than in peacetime. Listen, we're living in a war. And we need to shape our minds and shape our hearts and shape our churches and shape our MCs and shape our families to stand against the schemes of the evil one. Let me pray.
Father, I thank you for giving us a picture of our adversary. That we need a scouting report on our enemy who's hell-bent to destroy our soul and destroy the lives of our children and to ruin our church and to mar the good name of Christ on our planet. Thank you for opening our eyes and awaking us to that reality. And Father, I also thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that through him we can overcome all of the wiles and schemes of the devil, that we can stand and our armor is adequate. We can stand and the gospel is powerful enough. We can stand knowing that you have never lost a sheep and you're not gonna ruin your reputation on us that you will never let the enemy snatch us out of your hand. And I pray this morning for anybody who has never put their faith in Christ, that they would say, God, help me. God, come into me. God, I turn. I see the evil in my own heart. I see the evil in the world. And I turn from it and I run to Jesus. Jesus, come into me, save me. And Father, they don't have to walk an altar this morning. They don't have to stand up this morning. They don't have to raise their hand this morning. They have to, in the recesses of their mind and their heart, they have to trust you, call upon your name and put their faith in you. And I pray that you would do that in them right now. And for those of us in this room who live our lives as functional atheists, we live our lives not really thinking about the devil, We live our lives shocked when evil happens in our own heart or evil happens in the world. Would you wake us up this morning? And would the reality of an enemy and the reality of the devil give us a greater love and appreciation for Jesus, that Jesus has disarmed the rulers, that Jesus has conquered Satan? Would you do this for us now? And Lord, Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed. Humanity's greatest sin, the betrayal of a perfect son of God. On that night, you took your closest followers into a room and you're sitting down for the Passover meal and you flipped the script on that Passover meal and you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body that's broken for you, eat it. And then you took the cup of wine and you said, this is my blood that's been shed for you. Drink it. And we're told to partake in this supper as often as we come together, remembering the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That this is what it took to conquer evil. It took God dying himself. And Jesus, so we take the bread and we take the wine or the grape juice this morning and we bring it into ourselves and we're we're reminded that you come into us and you cleanse us from the inside out and you change us from the inside out and you protect us even from the inside out. That you are this close to us this morning. So for those who are gonna take the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ and take the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.